Our Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence, Lord. We know that you are here, and Lord, we bring these requests, these praises, these problems, whatever they may be. We bring them and lay them at your feet. We're trusting you, Lord. As our Lord and Savior, we trust you to work in our lives, in the lives of the people that we love and that we're lifting up to you now. So, Father, we come to you and we ask that. Lord, as we go into this remainder of our service, and when we look into your word, I pray that you would open that up to us as well. Lord, teach us something that maybe we've never realized before, maybe we've never known. Challenge our thinking, our preconceived ideas, Lord, and teach us about you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? It's good to see all of you here this morning. And I want to thank you for coming out. We have some folks visiting with us. I want to encourage you to get by and speak to Elizabeth back there if you haven't spoken to her and meet her family. They are leaving to go back to West Africa later in the month, not actually this week, but later in this month they'll be going back. And uh, that's um, home, but it's also in turmoil over there. So we might want to just remember them in prayer and lift them up as you, uh, as you do. I want to uh, remind you that one of the biggest hindrances to the Christian becoming a mature believer and growing in their faith is often the preconceived ideas that they have, things they've been taught, things they've heard and in the past, um, things that they believe, and regardless of where it came from. But one of the challenges that they have in becoming mature believers and growing in their faith and understanding is that they almost have to become deprogrammed. I know that as a pastor, that's one of the hardest things for a pastor to do is to have to try to deprogram people from what they have been taught in the past or maybe have just come to believe for no basis or no reason and try to get them to see the truth of what the Bible says. Now, this has been especially true when it comes to the subject of grace. We've, we've talked about that at length before, and um, when it comes to the subject of grace and, and then works or legalism, uh, that's really a big issue. A lot of people have preconceived ideas and thoughts and things they've always heard or believed to be true that aren't. And they really have to be deprogrammed, so to speak. They have to be shown that what they believe is really not biblical and then shown what the Bible really says. Sometimes they do that. They're resistant to that, I should say, um, because it's what they believe and they hold that near and dear. And they don't like for people to challenge that. And that's not a healthy way to look at things. It's not a healthy state of mind because we all should be always open to being challenged because if we are wrong on something, we definitely want to be corrected and would like to be shown that. Now, when it comes to deprogramming or changing the way we think, I think that uh, when it comes to the subject of prayer, that's true as well. Now, last week we began the series on prayer, and I'm not sure how long it's going to last because I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing. But we take it one week at a time and see where God takes it. So we may be on this subject a year from now. I just don't know. But at any rate, my goal is maybe six or eight weeks, um, but we'll see how that goes. But last week we were looking at the subject of prayer. And we asked the question, why pray? Why should you and I pray? Now, immediately, probably some of you, when I ask that question, your response would be, well, because the Bible tells us to. And that's true. There's a lot of things that we do that maybe we don't even understand simply because the Bible tells us to do them. And in obedience to God, we, we do that. And that's, that's good. That's okay. 
But sometimes we need to know beyond just the Bible told me to as to what are the benefits, why should I, what is it that God says in his word concerning the subject. And so we looked at last week three reasons why you should be praying. Number one, we talked about that the power of God is released in the lives of the people who pray. That's shown throughout Scripture, that God releases his power, his um, working in our lives when we pray, and things happen. You cannot deny that. Things happen. We also looked at the second reason, and that was that the way that prayer affects you spiritually. Now, we talked about this at length, not necessarily the, the, the answer. I want you to understand that. Paul talked about in Philippians, he said, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, he was looking at something that, that occurs in your life as a response to you having been in prayer. And we sometimes look at that and we think, well, the whole object of prayer is to make things happen, to get something, you know, to get answers. And while we look at that, we look at the end result, God looks at the process and God values the process. And God says, I want you here at my feet. I want you listening to me. This is where I have the opportunity to talk to you in a way that maybe you've never allowed me to before. When you're busy at work and school, I, you don't listen. And so here at my feet, when we're in this communion together called prayer, then, then you listen. And that's what God wants. See, God values that process. And we said last week that maybe sometimes the reason why God delays the answers is because he wants to prolong the process. And I think that's a valid point. I think that sometimes God just wants us to get used to being there. The third reason was because of the way that it affects you emotionally, the peace and joy and hope and so forth, that are ours simply because of the process of praying. You just go before the Lord, and whether or however God chooses to deal with that problem and answer that problem, it really is irrelevant in the sense that you are changed for having been there, and that's so important. And so these are reasons why you ought to be praying, and not something that we often think about um, And when it comes to, you know, why. Sometimes we just take that legalistic approach, well, we got to pray because God told us to, and so you enter into prayer and you get nothing out of it, and you're not blessed and God isn't blessed either. And so I want to change that. I want you to understand that there are benefits and reasons why we need to be doing it. Now, when it comes to the subject of prayer, there are two great misconceptions that people have about prayer that I want to try to deal with today. Here they are. Let me share them with you. And I want you to think long and hard about whether these apply to you. In other words, are you struggling in these areas? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But if you are, be honest, okay? The first misconception that we have is that somehow we as believers, when we come to prayer, we have to do something to get God to listen to us. We've got to do something unusual, something unique, something out of the ordinary to get God to listen because God is too busy and he doesn't really care about us that much. And in order to get him just to listen to me, We sometimes think that we have to go through some spiritual gymnastics just to get God to hear us and to pay attention to what we're saying. And with that comes all kind of bizarre things, bizarre ideas about how you go about approaching prayer because you've got to grab a hold and pray through and get to God and reach up there to heaven and shake the gates of the pearly gates there and you've got to get God's attention. 
That's not in the Bible. And so maybe that's part of your problem. That's a misconception that you have, that somehow you've got to make God listen to you. Here's the second misconception that we have, and that is that somewhere there's a lost key that unlocks the vault to God's blessings. There's a secret to prayer we don't know about. See, that's what we believe. And so we enter into this this theology, if you will, about, well, maybe if I'm on my knees, God will listen and God will move. And there's nothing wrong with praying on your knees in uh, respect and in worship to God. Nothing wrong with that. But whether you're praying on your knees or praying standing up, God isn't going to hear you more or less in either way. Maybe I ought to be laying prostrate on the ground. Okay, then lay down and pray. If that's what God would have you to do, that's what you feel led to do, then do it. But don't think that there's a secret here that's going to unlock the keys of the of the bounty, if you will, okay? Maybe there's certain words I need to pray. I need to I need to say it's in Jesus' name. Well, if you want to say it, say it. If you want to say something else, say it. There's no secret here. Maybe there's some certain method, or maybe I just need to pray longer. Uh, I got to do something, but I got to break through. See, that's what we think. I've got to break through and reach God and shake Him and make Him pay attention and give me what it is that I want. And this is one of the biggest hindrances to our prayer life because we're not quite sure how to do that. And whenever God doesn't respond in a timely fashion or in the way in which we would want Him to, we conclude, well, there's a secret out there. I've just got to find it. And what I want you to talk about, or I'm going to talk to you about, and I want you to see today is that even though many of us really believe that, you know, we may not say it, you would not stand up and raise your hand and say, yes, pastor, that's me, I believe that. But deep down, there are times in our lives where that's what we feel like, and it affects our prayer life. And as we talk today, what I want to try to get you to see is there is no secret to prayer. You know, prayer is something that God gave us as a gift, and there's no secret handshake here. There's no secret ring. There's no secret incantation. There's nothing secretive about it. God never set it up that way, and that is not what he wants. And God is willing to answer. He's anxious to answer. God does not want or expect us to beg and plead. Now, I'm going to talk to you about that today and show you some passages. And I want you to understand that. I want you to go out here believing that. I want you to believe that God does not expect his people to have to pray through, grab a hold of him, shake him, and beg and plead to get him to wake up and do something. That is not who God is. I want you to increase your confidence when it comes to prayer. I want you to be able to go to God with a full understanding that God cares about you and that God is willing to answer. God wants to answer. If you're not convinced of that, you will not pray. So we're going to talk about that a little bit too. And bottom line, when everything is said and done, what we really want is that you pray more, that you spend more time praying, that it becomes a part of your life, that it's an integral part of your life, and that it is you know, it is, it is prayer, communion between you and God that, that God responds to and changes you. And, folks, that's my heart's desire here. So this is what I'm after, to really help you to begin to pray more and pray and look at prayer differently, if, if you could. Now, we're going to be, begin today by looking at a passage of Scripture that is one of the mis, most misunderstood passages on the subject of prayer in all the Bible. 
And I want you to understand what this passage means because it means the exact opposite of what we think. And in, in explaining this and coming to the understanding of what this passage is talking about, you're going to learn something about God in prayer and our relationship to him. Now, the passage is in Luke chapter 18. 18, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, but I want to break it down into segments. I'm going to be looking, first of all, at verses 1 through 3. Now, let me read this to you. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, guys, mark that. If you've got your Bibles open, if you're not, just make a mental note here. We're going to come back to verse 1 later on. But I want you to understand when he says this and gives this parable, Jesus' point, what he's trying to get across, is that I want you to always pray and not give up. Let's move on. Here's the parable in verse 2. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. That's her plea. Now let's look at this because I want you to note first of all that it says that it's a parable. If you know anything about parables, you know that a parable is not supposed to be pressed for meaning at every point. That's not what it's given for. It's a fictitious story given to make a point, usually just one. Now, the fact that it's a parable also tells you that not every character in the parable has significance. They're not part of the story, really. They're just making a point. So you've got an unjust judge here, and you've got a widow. The unjust judge could care less about the widow. He is crooked as the day is long. And does not want to in any way help her. Now her problem, it says that she's been dealt, she's been dealt with unjustly. She has an adversary. Now here's what in the story could have happened. Widows didn't have a whole lot of rights back then. And so if her husband has passed away and somebody cheated her out of her money or inheritance, what he had saved, her land, whatever, uh, then she wants justice. You know, make this right, Judge. This is all I've got, and I need somebody to come to my aid, and I need somebody to help me. And it says here that he is unjust, he's crooked, and he doesn't want to help her. And I want you to notice here in verse 3 that it says that she kept coming to him all the time and saying, Grant me justice. Now picture this, because if the poor guy opens his door to go to work one morning, there's that widow. You know, I want help here, you know, I'm... And and, and he goes to lunch, and there she is at the restaurant. And she shows up at the restaurant. Hey, when are you going to help me here? And she is on him all the time. And we don't know how long this lasts or how long it takes in the story. But we do know this in verse 4. Now watch this. It says, for some time he refused. He refused to do anything. He wouldn't do it. Now, again, why? Because maybe some of his crony friends are the ones that took her, her money. I don't know. But then the next sentence says this, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what the, what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now he's a big chicken too, okay? You know, if I don't do something, she's not going to give up. She's never going to give up and she might just decide to kill me and attack me. So he decides, and, and he begins to do something and make things right, whatever that entailed. And so that's the end of the parable. 
And so what has happened over the years now is preachers have preached this or books have been written or whatever. We conclude that what this is saying is that we ought to act like the widow. We ought to be bothering God all the time because he, if you follow the line of reasoning in the old interpretation of this, the way a lot of people look at this, the unjust judge represents God. And they say, well, maybe he's not really unwilling, but you, you just got to keep on him. You know, you got to pray through. You got to get up there in his face and you got to shake heaven and you got to say, you know, you want justice here. You want something to happen. And God is going to only respond to the people who just beat down the doors of heaven and grab him by the collar and say, do something. And this is why it has led to, within Christianity, this idea that somehow we've got to do something out of the ordinary in prayer in order to reach up to heaven and get God's attention. Because this is what apparently... Jesus said, because he says here, uh, the parable was given to teach us to always pray and not give up. And so the logical conclusion is that this widow represents us in the way we ought to be praying. And what you need to understand that the truth of this is the exact opposite. Because you see, we need to read the next couple of verses to understand what Jesus meant when he gave the parable because he explains it. Now watch this. In verses 6 through 8, it says, And the Lord said, now Jesus is talking to the crowd now. He gave them the parable. Now he's talking to them. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Now, guys, this is a parable in contrast. This is a story about contrast. And what Jesus is doing is giving a hypothetical story about a crooked judge who didn't want to do anything. And this is why he says at the beginning here of of verse 6, he says, Listen to what the unjust judge said. What did he say? Well, he said, this woman is bothering me. She's going to attack me if I don't do something. I don't care what she thinks or anybody else. I don't even care what God thinks. Now, the question is this. As he looks at the crowd, he says, now, is that what you think about God? Because you know something? They did. That was their perception of God. That God's sitting up in heaven and God doesn't want to help me. God doesn't want to come to my aid. God doesn't want to hear my prayers. God doesn't want to answer. And they had the same mentality. You got to get a hold of God. You got to get his attention. This is why you find them in the Old Testament sitting on ash heaps in sackcloth and ashes, praying out to God to get his attention. And Jesus is trying to get them to see in this parable, let me tell you the difference between that guy and who God really is. Between what you think God is and what he really is. That's not who God is. Let me tell you who God is. God is the one that will come to your aid quickly. Who doesn't look at you and say, you bother me? He's not the one who says, I don't care about you. Your God is the exact opposite of that. And this is what the point of the whole parable is, that you need to understand that, that your God is willing 
The judge here wasn't, but your God was. Now watch this, okay? I want to go back to verse 1. In verse 1, the question is this. He says that, uh, let me read it to you in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, this parable was given for the purpose of this, to teach people to keep on praying and not give up. Now, the question then becomes this, why would they give up? Why would they give up? And the point is this, that they give up when they think that God is not involved, that God doesn't care, and they're not going to get anything out of him. Then they quit. Jesus takes the parable to say, that's not who God is. God does care. You're not a bother. And just keep praying and don't give up because God does care about you. And God does respond. God is willing. And guys, this is so important. Because as long as you believe, listen to me, as long as you believe that God is not willing to answer your prayer, you will not pray. You'll stop. Yeah, I prayed for a week and nothing happened, so I just gave up. Because I know deep down God doesn't care. I know deep down in my heart He's up there and I'm just a bother to Him and He could care less about me because He knows me from the inside out and He knows who I am and He doesn't like it. So why pray? And guys, I'm telling you, a lot of you think that. A lot of you feel that way. Now, you know something? Here's the... the, the important part of this, and that is the people to whom he's speaking. Because Jesus is giving the parable to Old Testament Jews. That's who was there. When Jesus spoke, he was speaking to people living under Old Testament law. And the point is this, those people believed that. Why did they believe that? Why did the Old Testament believer, the Old Testament Jewish people, why did they have this perception of God? This said to them or taught them or led them to believe that God really doesn't care about you. And that if you really want his attention, you better clean up your act and you better pray through and you better find the secret and you better, you know, lay down a sackcloth and ashes and all these other things and weep and wail and all these things they did. You better do that because God is really not willing to answer your prayer. That's what they thought. Now the question is this, why did they think that? Why did they think that? Why did they live under that illusion? Well, I think it goes back really to the Old Testament law itself and to the time of Moses, really. When God set up the law with Moses and the tabernacle, which, you know, was the temple was yet to come, but this was the temporary temple. And he put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies and he said to the Israelites, you can't go in there. I'm going to hover there over the Ark of the Covenant in this cloud. It's going to be there forever. This is my presence in the nation of Israel, and I'll take care of you and so forth, And but don't you go in there. One priest can go in one time a year and offer an offering on the mercy seat for the sins of the people, but any other offerings and sacrifices are offered outside of this, out in the temple area, in the courtyard, and so forth, but not in there. Well, God, why can't we come in there? Because you're not worthy. That's a fact. You're not worthy. He even put up a curtain, the Bible calls it, the veil. And he told Moses to put this up. It's this thick embroidered 
woven curtain, very heavy and very thick, that hung from the ceiling to the floor to separate those two areas. Nobody ever went in there. And from the beginning of the law, as it was given, Israel learned this important lesson. We're not worthy to go into the presence of God. Now, that was on purpose. Then Paul tells us in Galatians, why did, the God, why did Moses give the law, the Bible says, or Paul asks. Moses gave the law to show you that you're a sinner. That's the reason he gave it. Never meant to save anybody. Never meant to make anybody righteous. He gave the Ten Commandments to show people they're sinners. You, Israel, are not worthy to come into my presence. I am a holy, righteous God. So you stay out here, offer the sacrifices, and you worship me, and I will bless you and care for you when you walk with me in obedience and so on and so forth. And it goes on. They grew up with this understanding about their relationship with God. It's not personal. God related to us on a national level as a group of people. We were blessed or cursed as a nation. And my relationship to him wasn't really personal. I have no right to go back there behind that curtain and see his face or worship him or pray to him. And so what developed over the years, and this was never what God intended, but what happened, is that Israel developed this idea, this theology, that God was unapproachable and that God really didn't care. And so, in a sense, they would pray to God. and In essence, they're saying, hey, are you back there or not? I don't know if you're back there, but I'm praying. Can you hear me? I'm dying out here. Everything's happening. Have you gone to sleep? Do you not care about us? And nothing happened. No, no voice from God coming out from behind the curtain. And so they grew up with the understanding or the belief in the back of their minds that God was a God to be served, but he really didn't care about us. Now, there were exceptions to that. Understand that. I mean, the patriarchs, for the most part, who had this personal relationship with him understood differently. I'm talking about average people. And so what happened is this, and this is, I want to show you this, okay? Because if you go back and look in the Old Testament, you find people praying. You find um, David and Solomon and the prophets. You, you find them praying all the time. But what we don't often do is stop and look at what they're saying in their prayers. Because here's the point. Most of their prayer time was spent asking God to just listen. God, hear me. God, please wake up. Now listen, watch these verses, okay? There's, I'm going to show you five or six verses here. Just be patient. Walk, 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 walk with me through these. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 40. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Read between the lines here. What is he saying? <laughs> God, wake up. God, listen. Do you not hear me? Do you not see me here? Psalms chapter 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Read between the lines. What is he saying? 
Lord, I don't, I don't really believe you're going to do anything. I need you to hear me. Guys, let me tell you something. We do the same thing. We have this theology, you see, this belief that we've got to be deprogrammed from, that somehow God's not listening and could care less. He's up there in heaven doing his thing. So we feel like we've got to yell and scream and pray through and do all this stuff, these spiritual gymnastics to get God to pay attention. And what we don't understand is that God's right there and he's paying attention. And he cares. Now, look at, let's, let me read you a couple of these others, because if you read the Bible in the Old Testament, you're going to see this. Psalms chapter 6, verse 9. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Now, the psalmist is ecstatic, you know. He heard me. Yoo-hoo, right. He's going to answer me, man. He was shocked. In Psalms 39, verse 12, listen to this. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Oh, my gosh. Read between the lines here. Lord, listen, stop being deaf. Hear what I'm saying. Lord, do you not care? You know, we dwell with you like strangers. Oh, what is that telling you? He knew nothing about the relationship. He missed the point. In Psalms chapter 55, verse 1, Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. See, most of their prayer time is spent begging God to listen. Psalms 80, verse 4, How long... Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? How long are you going to be mad at us? How long are you going to stop listening, you know? And then Nehemiah. Oh, Nehemiah was the same way. Everybody was. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your ears open. (coughs) Excuse me. To hear the prayer your servant is praying. The servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. God, pay attention. Open up your ears. Have you ever felt like that? I'm going to go and I'm going to pray. Now, God, open up your ears and listen. I mean, do you not see me here? You ever feel like your prayers don't get past the ceiling? They did. Because all of their lives, every time they went to worship God in the temple or offer a sacrifice, that stinking veil, that, that curtain, told them that God was unaccessible. It told them, you have no right to come into my presence. Only through the sacrifice can you come. I'm allowing you to be here, but you have no right. And then something happened. The Messiah came. Jesus Christ was born, he lived, and then he was crucified. Now listen to this verse. The day that he died in Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 38. Listen to what it says. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Amen. How can you not be excited about that? Holy moly, the curtain's gone. 
What did it mean? It meant that God says to you and me, now you can come. Now you're worthy. Well, why? Because the Old Testament sacrifices were only temporary. They only covered sin. You realize it never forgave sin. It only covered it. And then Jesus comes and spills his blood as a sacrifice. And it says, God says, on that sacrifice, now you're worthy. And every person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ is worthy to come into his presence and is worthy to be heard. And every person that has put their faith in Jesus Christ is his child. And those children matter to him. And he listens and he hears. Listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, look at that. Now you got confidence, he says, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened to us through the curtain that is his body. And then he goes on to say, then if that's the case, let us draw near. It's beautiful. He says to you and me, what for centuries the Old Testament saint thought in the way in which they lived in relation to God, he said, it's gone now. And if there was ever any question about my love for you, if there was ever any question that I care and that I listen and that I respond, then please let that be gone because now the relationship is totally different. Do you know that God doesn't deal with us nationally now as a group? He deals with us individually. God deals with you and me individually. I have the right to go behind the curtain. And so do you. And every time we go to the Lord in prayer, we go behind the curtain. And we lay our requests before our Lord. And he's not like that judge we talked about in the parable. It's what Jesus was trying to get him to see. He's not bothered when you come. God is pleased. And this is the biggest obstacle, I think, to a Christian in their prayer life. They still don't think they're worthy. Listen to this passage. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread? Now, this is Jesus talking. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now think about it. Daddy, I'm hungry here gnaw on this rock. We wouldn't do that. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. He's, you know, it's about as ridiculous a statement as you can make, but that's what he's trying to do, make a point. Then he goes into verse 11. Here's what he says. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, get it, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's not that stinking judge in that parable. He's the exact opposite. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that Jesus cares. Jesus wants to answer. God wants to respond. Let me say something. I want you to listen very carefully, okay? God does not answer your prayer because you deserve it. Listen to what I'm saying. He does not answer your prayer because you deserve it. Because you don't. I don't either. 
God does not answer your prayer because you pester the hound out of him. That's not the reason he answers. God does not answer your prayer because you found some hidden key that somebody told you about. That's not it. Now listen carefully. God answers your prayer because of who you are. Who you are. You and I don't deserve anything but the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, you and I can bow our knee in the presence of our Father, and He listens and He hears and He responds. Guys, I know the questions that we have about prayer are always the same. Well, I prayed about such and such and nothing happened. And we can talk about that in another sermon down the line here. But you need to understand this, that you have the right to be there and that God is listening and that God cares. Because if you don't think that, if you don't believe that, you won't pray. And so you've got to be convinced that God really does care for you. Our prayer life is based on that relationship. I'm his child. You're his child. If you've put your faith in him, you have every right to be there. And if I doubt that relationship, I will lack the confidence, the confidence to come into his presence. Back when my oldest son, who's now about 45, I think he is, I'll lose track on purpose sometimes because it makes me older. (laughs) He was 16. We were living over in the Dallas area at the time. I had just graduated from seminary. I think it was like 1987. And he was 16. I had no money. I spent everything going to school. We were just getting by. And we were, you know, he needed a car. He wanted a car. 16-year-old boy. I didn't have any money. We're riding along one day. I think we'd been fishing or something. We were riding back. And we see on the corner this car sitting there that's for sale. Now, it's about a 75 or 77, somewhere in there, Firebird, bright orange, black interior. It had decent miles on it, and it was in decent shape. We, we drove it around, 1200 bucks. I said, how would you like to have that car? Man, he lit up. He looked at me. He said, are you kidding me? He said, are you kidding me? He said, are you really going to get that car for me? I said, yeah, we're going to get it for you. So we gave the guy a deposit, went and found some money somewhere, a bank or something. I forgot now where we came up with that money. But we came up with the money. And we went and got the car. And I can remember him as he got it, gets into this car and just the excitement on his face and the gratitude in his heart as he drove off in this car. Now, a year later, he wrecked it. But that's beside the point. That's a whole other story. But at any rate, the point is that this. Why did I get him that car? Now, did he deserve it? No, he was a typical 16-year-old smart-mouthed kid. He didn't deserve anything but a good smack, you know. But he was, he was my son. And see, that made the difference. Why did I even want to get him the car? Because he's my son. You and I are sons of God. And your God wants to bless you beyond measure. God wants you at his feet. God wants you listening and him listening to you. And he was always there listening. It is He is never bothered. He is never bothered. Guys, you and I have to understand that. Because if we don't, I'm telling you, if we don't, we will not pray. And that's the reason Jesus said in that parable, I'm giving you this parable so that you will continue to pray and not stop. 
Because if you understand who God is, you won't stop. You'll keep praying. And guys, that's what I'm wanting for all of us, that we do that. One last verse as I close this up. It's in Romans chapter 8, some verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul said as he writes this. He said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's who you are. That's who you are, and you've got to believe that. And if you really believe it, you'll never stop praying to your Father. You will pray faithfully because you know that the relationship gives you that privilege. And you'll go in confidence because that's who God is. Maybe you're here this morning and that makes no sense to you because you don't really know him. I want to read this verse to you. It's found in John chapter 6, verse 47. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never put your faith in him, listen to the verse. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Guys, it doesn't get any simpler than that, does it? I mean, it's about as simple as it can be. He who believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he who believes that when he died on the cross, he took all of your sins upon himself, he who believes that has everlasting life. It doesn't say he who believes and goes to church. I wish more of you went to church on a regular basis. We've got a decent crowd in here this morning. See what happens when you all come at the same time? Stop calling each other saying it's your turn this week. No, it's your turn. I went last week. Stop doing that, okay? Everybody show up at the same time. But that's not what saves you. It's not believe and go to church. It's not believe and give you money. It's not believe and be good. It's not believe and obey the commandments. It's simply believe. That's what grace is. And God made it that way, and God loves you dearly. He did it all for you. If you put your faith in him, the Bible says he gives you as a gift eternal life. It is a gift of God. It's not by any works that you can do. See, this is a big area where deprogramming is important because everybody comes into this with preconceived ideas. Oh, God wouldn't do that for me. Well, yeah, he would. Yeah, he would. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as we bring this to a close. If you're here this morning, and if I were to ask you, if you were to die right now, what would happen to you? Would you go to heaven or not? If you can't answer that, then chances are you don't know my Lord. Chances are you've never put your faith in him because the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are his child. There's an assurance that overtakes you when you put your faith in Christ that you can't explain. It's God doing something inside of you that you just know that you know. And if you're not sure, then settle the issue today. Turn to God and basically you can just follow a little prayer. The prayer doesn't save you, but, you know, it goes something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have shamed you. But I believe that Jesus died for me. I'm trusting him to save me.
Thank you, Father, for loving me that much. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what you've done this morning is to call upon the name of the Lord in faith, to believe. I want to know who you are. I'm not going to have you come forward. You can stay seated right where you are. I just want to ask you to put your hand up in the air and say, Pastor, I'm trusting Christ this morning. Right now, I want to be sure. Right now, I'm settling this issue. Anyone at all. Just slip it up and put it back down. For the rest of us that are here this morning, as believers in Christ, we have to come to a, a, a conclusion here, a realization. Do I really believe that God cares and that God hears my prayers? Do I really believe that he wants to answer them? Do I really believe that he loves me? Your prayer life will reflect what you believe. And so now you have to make a decision. Am I going to become a praying Christian, a praying believer, based upon my perception and understanding of who God is? Or am I going to quit my prayer life because I don't believe God cares? See, that's the decision you have to make. And I pray that each one of us would enter into this understanding of just who we are and just what he's done for us. Let's be a praying church, okay? Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, Father, we're overwhelmed with your love for us. We're overwhelmed with the reality that you care, that we have entered into a relationship with you that people in the Old Testament didn't understand. And very few people in the day in which we live understand. God is grace. It's all of grace. And I thank you for that. And I pray that each one of us would realize that we have the right now to come behind the curtain. We have the right to come into your presence. And every day, any time, we come right into your presence and you're listening. We're not a bother. You're listening and you care. And you respond. Father, may we trust you. May we learn, Lord, to let you have these problems, these affairs, these issues in our lives. And may we leave them at your feet and trust you, Father. That is our prayer. But, Lord, more than anything else, make us a praying church. In Jesus' name I ask this.